Sometimes the ways of God are clear. Sometimes they are translucent. Sometimes they are opaque. And what is man to do during the seasons of opacity, when the divine presence we crave proves elusive, when our last epiphany fades in our memory and once bright promises threaten to evanesce, when dreams flicker and darkness threatens, how sturdy are the plans of God? This is a story about a decision, a choice in the midst of collapsing circumstances to keep going, to risk believing that God is closer than he seems and that our faith is more important than we understand. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Overburdened carts sway and creak beneath the weight of their cargo, their wheels bumping along the road south from Dothan. Water sloshes in inflated bladders lashed to the sideboards. Jugs of oil and wine clunk against one another. Camels grunt. And the coarse laughter of Ishmaelite traders completes the chaotic symphony. The Ishmaelites, cast out of Abraham's camp and wandering ever since. Noonday sun flashes off the men's gold earrings as they turn their heads toward the cart with the most valuable merchandise. Trickier, of course, more hassle than wine or wheat, but a handsome profit, if you can locate the right buyer. Perhaps there is just the one, as serendipitous find this procurement a crime of opportunity. Or maybe these traders specialize in this type of trafficking, and their camels pull a few carts loaded with cages, the cages loaded with wares. Inside the bars, a teenage boy, bruised and bloodied, tries unsuccessfully to hold back terrified tears. Joseph, beloved son of Jacob, wipes his eyes and wonders if he'll ever see his father again. The scene plays again and again in the boy's mind. A blur of colors as his robe is ripped from his body, the sound of his brothers shouting and the pain of their fists landing, his heels dragging across the ground, the sensation of falling and the wind leaving his body as he hits the bottom of the pit. And finally, the 
clinging confusion of his God-given dreams. Sheaves and stars genuflecting before him, his brother's taunts as they leave him alone. Who's bowing now? When the traitors offered to help him out of the pit, he thought he'd been saved. More disappointment. More tears. Joseph looks at the sun moving toward the liquid horizon on his right. He gulps as he realizes they're heading. This is the road that traces the sea. This is the road that leads to Egypt. Where is Yahweh? The caravan trundles along, mostly through desolate territory, stopping at the odd town where there are deals to be had or sales to be made. Joseph prays from inside his cage, surely, but no window of escape presents itself. Even if he could break free, he'd never survive the journey back. He licks his bloody lip, perhaps, and takes solace in one bright spot in all of this. The traders are feeding him generously. It's not altruism, of course. They need him to show well when it's time to make the sale. At last, the convoy rumbles onto the system of roads that crisscross the Nile Delta. The benefits of this extraordinary floodplain are immediately apparent. Lush fields full of leafy crops reach in every direction. Onions, radishes, lettuce, garlic, parsley, groves of olive trees, and orchards dotted with apples and pomegranates draw lines across the thriving plains. Joseph's eyes grow wide as the capital comes into view. A mind-bending metropolis, a forest of architecture populated by countless statues. The almighty Ra, Horus, Bastet, Isis, and Tot. Joseph does not know their names yet, but that will soon change. The wagon jolts to a stop. One of the men unlocks the young man's cage and yanks on the rope tied to his bindings. Joseph stumbles out, stretches his cramped legs, and looks around. What does he see? An enormous corral, maybe packed with other abductees, all of them shoved into lines ordered by gender, age, and build. Men with whips shouting and glaring, teenage girls trembling, fathers kidnapped while traveling, whispering prayers for their children and wives. The stench of urine and excrement caked in the ragged clothes of men and women who've arrived here from who knows where. The chaos of masters shouting and people crying and a dozen languages colliding. Slave dealers and buying agents canvass the rows, squeezing biceps and inspecting teeth, sizing up the stock. Joseph feels a hand on his arm, hears a voice shouting a number. The grip tightens as he's pulled out of line. A clerk nods, squints at a sheet of papyrus, and writes down a name. Potiphar. Potiphar's estate reaches across acres of prime land in the Delta, 
no less would be appropriate for the captain of Pharaoh's prison. Exquisite gardens, sprawling flocks of sheep, cattle and servants, columned porticos, ornate stonework, fountains even, spouting fresh water from the Nile into bubbling pools that cool the shaded courtyards. Shrines to the gods of Egypt punctuate the opulent grounds. Joseph is bathed and shaved and led to his quarters. His duties are explained, the code of conduct spelled out, boundaries emphasized, rules of etiquette, how to treat Potiphar's belongings, what can and cannot be touched, the consequences of infraction. And in the midst of this storm of change, what is Joseph thinking? A month ago, he was checking on his brothers at Dothan, wearing the beautiful cloak his father made him. Now, he runs his hands over his smooth face, fingers the linen slave's skirt wrapped around his waist, sniffs the ointment rubbed into the skin of his bare torso. They say it's to ensure he smells good when the master and his wife are around. But to Joseph, all of it, the incense burning to Isis, the wafting scent of strangely spiced meat roasting atop licking flames, the ointment staining his flesh, it all smells like death. The death of freedom. The death of hope. The death of his dreams. Where is Yahweh? Where are the bowing sheaves and the falling stars? Gone. Vanished alongside the hills of his homeland. Joseph's taskmaster barks. He's yanked from his thoughts. This is his life now. The coming days are beyond difficult. Joseph wakes each morning amidst a collage of unfamiliar sights, sounds, smells, and tastes. Songs to Ra and his pharaoh reverberate in Joseph's ears, discordant and false. But the boy does his work, and he does it well. He's diligent, respectful, sharp, and talented. Before long, his superiors have taken notice of him, and his duties begin shifting from menial tasks to more significant responsibilities. Yahweh nods and continues his work. Days turn to weeks and then to months, and Joseph excels in his new duties. Everything that's handed to him seems to flourish. Eventually, Potiphar speaks to the young man from Canaan, expresses not just his approval, but his wonder at the way Joseph consistently excels far beyond the other servants in his estate. How... how do you... why does everything... And when Potiphar finally articulates his question, Joseph responds, Yahweh, my God, is with me. Quite a gamble on Joseph's part, 
For one, deflecting the credit to someone or something other than himself seems a waste of an opportunity to take credit and garner favor. Two, to assign glory to Yahweh is to disparage Egypt's pantheon. Yahweh bringing blessing rather than Ptah or Tot, surely Potiphar would be insulted or even outraged by this. And yet, Potiphar promotes Joseph and makes him his personal attendant. Yahweh nods and continues to work. Years pass. The once lanky, apprehensive Joseph grows muscled and confident. He demonstrates extraordinary gifts in leadership and logistics. Everything he touches turns to gold. Potiphar is beside himself with delight, incredulous at his luck in purchasing Joseph those years ago. He does the only thing that makes sense, puts Joseph in charge of the entire household, placing everything he has under the young man's authority. A special skirt is bestowed, signifying Joseph's unique place and authority in Potiphar's house. Pharaoh's captain places so much confidence in his new deputy, he concerns himself with nothing other than the food he eats. Perhaps his wife wishes his attention reached at least a bit further than that. Yahweh nods and continues to work. More months pass. Joseph watches as his God changes his fortunes. Perhaps one day, as a group of servants bow to him, Joseph remembers his dreams. Is this their fulfillment? It's certainly miraculous, this rise of his. He is still a servant, but finally Joseph is beginning to feel at home in this strange land, beginning to have a sense of a future to envision, beginning to smell less death and more life. Joseph looks to the heavens. It seems Yahweh has not been absent after all. Potiphar's wife is bored. Served by an ample force of attendants, she spends each day not cooking her own food, not cleaning her own house, not going to work, not mending clothes, not tending to young children, and perhaps not seeing all that much of her husband. What to do with all that idle time? People watch, for one. The constant percolation of servants provides at least some degree of distraction from her purposelessness. And one servant in particular proves unmissable. Not just because of his position of prominence in the household, but because, well, look at him. Joseph is gorgeous, handsome, well-built. He is not the boy who arrived here years ago. He has matured quite nicely, and so capable, self-assured, spirited. She watches, gazes, imagines, 
desires. Her desire conceives and finally, one day, gives birth to sin. Perhaps it happens spontaneously, a sudden eruption of pent-up lust, or perhaps the mistress of the house prepares for this moment, carefully chooses that day's makeup and perfume and clothing with seduction in mind. Joseph is going over that month's numbers, lost in his calculations, brushing the tip of the feather across his lips. Or maybe he's lending the wine stewards a hand, his shoulders flexing as he lifts crate after crate. Or maybe he's just finished the morning staff meeting, doling out assignments with magnetic authority. In spite of others milling about within view, Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph, smiles. He bows. She touches his arm, perhaps, and cuts right to the chase. Sleep with me. Joseph's eyes widen. His mind races. For generations, those who hear this story told will recognize two possibilities. Either Joseph regards this woman as physically attractive, or he does not. If the former is true, sexual temptation may swirl in the storm of this moment. Regardless, this woman holds power over the household and therefore over Joseph. Pleasing her might result in further favor and advancement. Rejecting her might result in her embarrassment and his own detriment. And Potiphar, Potiphar has disengaged from his estate's affairs to the extent that he'd likely never be the wiser. There is much to calculate. Or is there? It would seem from Joseph's response that he does no math in this moment, and his thoughts are not centered on Potiphar or this woman or even himself. Immediately, he shakes his head and says, Look, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he's put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. Joseph steps backward, perhaps, continues, He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Her face is changing. Did she think this far into her plan? If so, she anticipated, surely, the possibility of Joseph's refusal. If she opens her mouth to speak, Joseph interrupts her. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? Yahweh nods, smiles. Joseph is being obedient, but is it more than that? Does Joseph understand the true stakes of this moment, the true intent of this season? Yahweh is forming a nation through Abraham's bloodline. He is cultivating a chosen people, the sons of Isaac and the children of Jacob. He is creating Israel. But that is not all he's doing. Abraham's living descendants total maybe 80 people at this time. Yahweh loves them, but 
There are 100 million others on this planet, he sculpted. Every one of them a bespoke creation, a living soul, loved by Yahweh himself. Perhaps Yahweh has allowed Joseph's abduction not so that Joseph would become a slave, but so that Joseph would become an emissary, an ambassador, a light shining in the idolatrous darkness of Egypt, a lamp lit by a God who loves the people bowing their knees to Ra. It would have been easy enough to insulate Joseph, to grant him favor and success whilst withholding it from Potiphar and his household. Instead, Yahweh has employed Joseph as a conduit of blessing. Abraham's God has been generous to Potiphar, and not by accident, by design. And perhaps this moment of refusal demonstrates Joseph's awareness of these greater truths. Perhaps Joseph understands that his behavior, his integrity and trustworthiness bear more weight than simply his own standing with God. It would seem that Joseph has accepted his mission and all of its cosmic significance. He is fighting alongside Yahweh for Yahweh's cause and for the people Yahweh loves. And this surely makes Yahweh's heart swell with joy. But Potiphar's wife does not share Joseph's sensibilities. The next day, Joseph attempts, surely, to give the mistress a wide berth. But she finds him, propositions him again. Again, Joseph refuses, tries to help her understand why he will not go to bed with her. If only it were a matter of understanding. There are days that pass without incident, but more often than not, Potiphar's wife makes a point of putting herself in Joseph's way, coming on to him, badgering him to fulfill her desires in spite of his prior refusals. Does every proposition get easier to defend? Or does endurance become more difficult with each wave of temptation? Does Joseph at least find himself noticing the woman's growing desperation, her burgeoning chagrin, and wonder how long she'll tolerate his rejection? Does her instability make him nervous? Whatever else may be true of his internal state of mind, Joseph stays the course. But then, something changes. Potiphar's wife decides that her lack of success might have something to do with the presence of others. These servants always buzzing around like flies. And so she watches for an entirely private opportunity. Or creates one. One day, Joseph enters Potiphar's house to inventory lamp oil or to check on a delivery of linens, and he's startled by the quiet. Where are all the... But then she is there, and in her eyes is something ferocious. Give yourself to me, 
She's grabbing at his waist, clutching his skirt, shouting now as she pulls him toward her. Joseph pulls away, twisting himself free, leaving his slave's garment in her clenched fists. Driven by reflex, he runs out of the room in his loincloth, through the house and into the courtyard. Safely outside, he stops, breathing heavily. What just happened? Immediately, Potiphar's wife jumps into action. Enough of this prude. Who does he think he is refusing her? She calls her cadre of servants and points at them, wild-eyed. Listen to me. My husband bought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so that he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. The servants exchange shocked glances. Having planted this seed, she sends them out, places Joseph's skirt beside her bed, and assumes the posture of a wounded victim. When Potiphar arrives home after work, he finds his wife lying in bed, sobbing with bloodshot eyes. It was awful, she begins. Potiphar shakes off his confusion and presses for more. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me, to take advantage of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. A shocked Potiphar looks at the bedside where his wife is pointing. It's Joseph's garment. These are the things your slave did to me, she screams. And then... She elaborates. Joseph throws up his hands as Potiphar bursts into his quarters. What have you done? Pharaoh's captain has Joseph seized and, with no trial or inquest, thrown into the king's prison. A blur of colors as Joseph's position is ripped from him. The sound of Potiphar shouting and the pain of the guard's fists landing his heels dragging across the ground, the sensation of falling, the hope leaving his heart as he descends into this pit. And then the clinging confusion of those God-given dreams, sheaves and stars genuflecting before him, his brother's taunts mingling with the jeers of Potiphar's wife, who's bowing now. Days pass slowly in the prison. Joseph wakes each morning amidst a collage of unfamiliar sights, sounds, smells, and tastes. And Joseph's heart, where is it? What shape is it in after all that's happened? After all that hasn't? What good is a dream deferred so long? What good is a God who does not shield you from the worst of a fallen world? What good is a God who is not with you? Cages stretch along the central corridor. The air is stained by darkness and the stench of urine and excrement. It's all too familiar. But somewhere in the heavens, 
somewhere in the prison. Yahweh nods and continues his work. The warden notices the Hebrew in his facility. He's respectful, seems sharp. And if what Potiphar said is true, the young man is eminently talented. Even in his rage, the captain could not help but express his grief over losing such an asset in his household. Besides, there's something about him, something magnetic. Perhaps... And sure enough, over the coming months, the warden experiments with Joseph's potential. Joseph proves capable, and eventually, the warden places all of the prisoners under Joseph's authority. In time, Joseph is responsible for everything that happens in the prison. The warden places so much confidence in his new deputy, he doesn't bother with anything under Joseph's authority. More months pass, and once again, Joseph watches as his God changes his fortunes. Perhaps one day, as a handful of new prisoners bow to him, he remembers his dreams. Is this their fulfillment? Yahweh is with him. That much is clear. Clearer every day. If, in the days or years to come, Joseph imagines that he will die in this prison, he will be wrong. If he tries to find ways to diminish the promise of Yahweh given to him all those years ago as he slept, if he seeks more reasonable interpretations, ways of seeing that message that fit conveniently with his already lived experience, ways of hoping less, he will be disappointed. In time, he will find that he had every reason in the world to doubt his doubts, to trust in the sturdy promises of God. He's learning, even now, with every smile of the warden, with every moment he gets lost in good work, with every bit of daily bread. He's learning, too, that though his God has not shielded him from the worst of the fallen world, Yahweh has taken tragedy and transformed it before his eyes. More than once. And there are more of these moments to come. Yahweh will go on to bless more than Potiphar's house through this emissary of his. In the midst of famine, he will show kindness to the whole nation of Egypt and then through them to the world. Even to Joseph's wayward brothers. Every one of them a bespoke creation, a living soul, loved by Yahweh himself. 
Hey, Justin here. Thank you for listening to The Companion and The Right-Hand Man. I hope it blessed you. If you haven't already, you might check out Season 2, Episode 9, The Companion and the Chosen One. It's the prequel to this story, and it's a great complement to this episode. All right, don't forget about the show in Northwest Arkansas this November, Holy Ghost Stories Live, The Exodus. Tickets are getting scarce, so head to holyghoststories.org and reserve your seat. Bring a friend or your family, and I will see you there on November 19th. Oh, and I know a ton of you get my bi-weekly email the latest, but if you are missing out, you should sign up. It's free, and it's where I share info about what I'm up to, uh, interesting things I've come across online, events you can find me at, and always lots of stuff about the latest episode of Holy Ghost Stories. This week, for instance, I'm sharing the other place you might have heard the music from the first scene of this episode, uh, why I disagree with certain commentators about what exactly Potiphar was so angry about, and a helpful timeline of Joseph's tenure in Potiphar's house and the prison sentence he served. Just scroll to the bottom of holyghoststories.org and enter your email address. Finally, a huge thank you from all of us to the Tours, the leaders of the valiant band of patrons who give monthly so that Holy Ghost Stories can keep bringing people into encounters with Yahweh. Miranda, Amanda, Carrie Joy, John, Joshua, David, Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Daniel, Stephanie, Helen, Hildy, Debbie, Susan, Rick, Stephanie, Derek, Mindy, Maddie, Jody, Jonathan, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. Every time you give, Yahweh nods and continues his work. Thank you. You can join them at patreon.com slash holyghoststories. Links in the show notes. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and sound editing by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time.